I'm Krista Tippett. Today, the heart's reason. Theoretical physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman has been described as a transcultural voyager who courses from physics to philosophy, from music to metaphysics. We'll explore the interplay between Hindu spirituality and the insights of physics in his life and thought. Science enables us to understand the laws and principles by which the universe is constructed, it functions, and that is no trivial accomplishment. But there is always the question of meaning. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. I'm Krista Tippett. Theoretical physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman has been described as a transcultural voyager who finds meaning in life as he courses from physics to philosophy, from music to metaphysics, from Bhagavad Gita to Gregorian chants. He's an esteemed voice in the global dialogue between scientific and religious perspectives that is often obscured by headlines of a science-religion clash. Where American culture finds cognitive dissonance, Vivi Raman describes a consonance of experience. From American public media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the heart's reason, Hinduism and science with Vivi Raman. Varadaraja V. Raman is Emeritus Professor of Physics and Humanities at the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. He's lived and taught in the U.S. for four decades, but he was born into a Brahmin Tamil family in Calcutta in 1932 and educated in mathematics and physics in India and Paris. Vivi Raman has devoted his life to the science of physics and to the elucidation of Hindu religion. I have come to regard myself as an inheritor of two great traditions, as I see it. One, the Hindu tradition on the religious plane, and other, the scientific tradition, which I regard as one of the greatest intellectual and spiritual triumphs in the history of humankind. Vivi Raman has helped to edit an 18-volume encyclopedia of Hinduism. He's authored scores of papers on the historical, social, and philosophical aspects of physics, as well as the heritage of his native India. His books include Glimpses of Ancient Science and Scientists. And it is from his long imagination about history and time that Vivi Raman begins to put a Western sense of science and religion at odds into perspective. Modern science emerged in Western Europe, he says, and its immediate discoveries contradicted specific church teachings. But this kind of point-counterpoint never happened in the Hindu world. In the Hindu world, fortunately, there was a clear understanding of what constitutes religious knowledge, insight, experience on the one hand and what may be called intellectual, analytical, secular knowledge. This distinction is much more clear, it seems to me, in the Hindu world, which is why we don't have this kind of conflict. So in your way of seeing the world, then, as a Hindu, is there never a conflict? Um, There's a distinction and yet not a divide? Exactly. One often talks about cognitive dissonance, for example. Now, I rather call it an experiential consonance. And what I mean by that is that it is possible to distinguish between what we understand and explain in the logical and analytical framework Mm -hmm which is what science provides, and to distinguish it from another level of experiencing the world, which comes from 
what may be called deep involvement, it is not unlike enjoying music on the one hand right, and then proving a geometrical theorem. You can do Those are both. Two kinds not, of, right. These are two kinds of experience. And the human, uh, the human spirit, if I use the word, mm-hmm. is so complex and the human dimension that we have all kinds of possibilities. And one of the unfortunate consequences to me of the successes of the sciences is this addiction, as it were, to rationality. An addiction to rationality. By which I mean that every single aspect of human experience must be subjected to rigid rationality. Now, I have the greatest respect for reason and rationality, but I also think of, uh, you know, from the ecclesiastics, you may say, to everything that is a season and a time, to every purpose under heaven, right. which has been articulated by thinkers through the ages uh, in all uh, cultures, I would say. Uh, when Pascal wrote his famous statement, you know, le cœur a ses raisons que la raison ne connaît pas, the heart has its reasons which right. reason doesn't understand. Those are ways by which the enlightened thinkers and visionaries understood that the world is far too complex for us to really rigidly put everything under the straitjacket of reason, as it were. You make a point in in something you've written that reflects an observation I've made that so much of our cultural debate about science and religion seems to assume that science and religion pose competing answers to the same questions, but in fact they pose different questions. And you also note that in Tamil there's a distinction linguistically between why, as a causative question, the way science might ask why of a problem and why, as a teleological question, the way religion might ask it. I thought that was very interesting. I think it's a very, very important distinction because both kinds of why are important in that the human mind cannot escape those questions. We are intrigued by many. And we start uh, asking those questions from a very young age, don't we? I very mean. young age. <laughs> and, but the languages influence sometimes our way of thinking because when we talk, uh, as I gave that example, I sometimes ask my students, why are you taking this course? Some students may say because it is required in my uh, curriculum. Others may say, because I want to learn what you are going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Now, you see, these two answers both are legitimate answers to the same question. But the first answer implies a framework in which the student is operating. Right. It's kind of a logical framework. uh, But the second is a purposeful, a teleological, the second one, Mm -hmm. because I want to learn. It's in the future. Whereas the first one is because that's how the rules are are set up. So both questions are relevant, interesting, except that, as I see it, the question about why, in the deeper sense of what is the purpose of this universe, why am I here, and why was the world created at all, why are the laws such as they are, those are very fundamental questions for which we may never be able to find answers which are unanimously acceptable. Physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media, today exploring the intersection of scientific knowledge and Hindu spirituality in Vivi Raman's life. Hinduism is the world's third largest religion after Christianity and Islam, but it is by far the most ancient, as is its sacred language of Sanskrit. Alone among the world's major traditions, though, Hinduism has no known founder and no identifiable point of origin in history. 
V. V. Raman has called Hinduism a cultural religious worldview that has given rise to an impressive body of sacred literature, magnificent art, great music, majestic architecture, and profound philosophy. Its foundational truths are captured in ancient scriptures known as Vedas and conveyed by epic poetry and sagas such as the Bhagavad Gita. One of V.V. Raman's starting points for imagining the compatibility of science and religion is the impulse of universality that he finds both at the heart of science and in Hindu spirituality. You know, I think it is striking. I believe you and I have spoken about this when we've met originally, that although Hinduism is the third largest world religion after Christianity and Islam, it's the least known. It's the least in the headlines, partly for positive, you know, because it's not so much yes. making the news yeah. in so many negative ways these days. But yeah. um, it's not as well known in U.S. culture, even as Buddhism, which which grew of Hinduism. So if people have images at all in their heads, if they don't know anything, but they have a picture of Hinduism, it is of this multitude of deities. And that does not evoke universality, and nor does it evoke a religion that is compatible with logical thinking. So, you know, talk to me about how you would re- yeah. you respond to those kinds of stereotyped images that are out there. Or partial, let's say. Sure. And I think that is every reason for that misunderstanding. And one of the fundamental scriptures of Hinduism is known as the Vedas, the Rig Veda, for instance. And in the Rig Veda, the most important aphorism or statement is truth is one and the people call it by different names. Mm-hmm. And in Sanskrit, the word truth or sat, it's called ekam sat, that is but one truth. I like to look at it as, as follows. If we talk about music, how many music are there? Right. Even the question doesn't sound right. However, in order for anybody to understand or appreciate music, one can only do it in terms of a particular song or sonata or a concert or, a or genre whatever, that they, or mm-hmm. any genre of music and a particular piece in specifically. Now, the Hindu gods are, to me, somewhat like different pieces of music. The variety of melody and tempo. The sheer variety. And just as you would say, what is your favorite song? Probably everybody would have their own favorite music, favorite piece. Likewise, in the Hindu world, there is something called a favorite god. Believe it or not, it's called Ishta Devata. No, oh, I have heard Ma- that, that people tend to identify very strongly. Yes, and they have a special regard for that particular depiction of the intangible. Hmm. Every god is simply a, a representation. They are not any different, if you want to give an analogy, than having different saints in the Catholic tradition who are worshipped on different days, for example. You also write about a fundamental insight of Hinduism that also finds expression in this multiplicity of tradition and gods, that this fundamental insight that there are no simple answers to complex questions. And, you know, that's a... That's an important insight for our time in every sphere of life. In fact, my own personal view is that the religious experience is precisely in the experience of that mystery. There is in the human life certain mystery surrounding all of this. Mm -hmm. And it is the experience of that mystery, even if it is only momentary, and even if it is only for a few minutes every day, as, for example, when I do my meditation or whatever, that experience is what constitutes the religious experience. As soon as we unravel that mystery in words 
and in formulations, that becomes, in my view, the doctrine of a religion. Many of the religious doctrines are profound answers to the mysteries, and they become interesting and important more in historical and uh, geographical terms right. rather than in ultimate terms. But you're saying that the that, that experience of mystery always, in some sense, eludes and transcends the doctrine that it became? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And the doctrine may answer within a religious framework some of the mysteries. And to the extent that it gives fulfillment to the practitioners, I have no problems with that. But taking that to be universal, again, is not wrong right, right. as long as one does not impose that on other people who may have different answers to the mysteries. Physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman. Here's a passage from his 1997 book about the Bhagavad Gita. These lines in the Bhagavad Gita express one of the fundamental tenets of the Hindu worldview, indeed the doctrinal essence of Hinduism. The most important realization of Hindu seers, the fundamental revelation that comes from their meditation and spiritual search, is that beneath and beyond the material and the physical world lies a spiritual reality. It's only when one recognizes this that one has truly lived the human life. An analogy with the physicist's endeavor may clarify this thesis. We see, observe, and experience countless physical phenomena around us. Lightning and sunrise, erosion of rocks and the colors of the rainbow, the blossoming of flowers and the freezing of water in the cold, and many more. But when we become aware of these as various consequences of fundamental physical laws, our depth of understanding is enhanced, and our appreciation of the phenomenal world is enormously enriched. Likewise, say the seers, when we become aware of the spiritual substratum of the universe, our experience of it is heightened a thousandfold. Indeed, it is only when we achieve this that we really begin to see, that is, to understand anything. I'd like to ask you about some key ideas, notions in Hinduism and, and how, what they mean to you, also how you live them and experience them as a scientist. And one of those, and again, this is one of the few words I think that many people in a Western culture know from Hinduism, and is karma. And I'd love to know, you know what karma means for you and also... You know, how do you reconcile that kind of idea with what you know as a physicist? Okay, there are uh, an associated word, which I think is equally important in the Hindu world and which has come into the West with uh, different connotations, is dharma. Dharma, yes. Now, uh, very simply put, dharma is what we are expected to do, and karma is what we do, very simplistically. Hmm. Uh, Dharma has been translated variously as duty, as religion, and so on, or more exactly as an ethical framework. And there are many treatises uh, in classical Hinduism which talk of Dharma in different ways. One of them, for example, lists such things as uh, mercy and temperance, adherence to logic, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of truth, not getting angry. And uh, these are some of the kinds of uh, ethical principles. Kind of which essential are, virtue is what Essential virtues. Mm-hmm. The dharma, which is said to be the crucial one, is the pursuit of truth. And in many instances, if one quotes from uh, some of the texts, there is everything from being... Uh, kind to others and being respectful to parents, those kinds of things. Now, karma is a metaphysical concept which is the Hindu answer to what is sometimes called the problem of evil. 
Karma is a response to the problem of evil. Yes, because evil, in the sense of theodicy term, coined, as you know, by Leibniz, mm-hmm. in answer to uh, you know the French philosopher Bayle, I think, who talked about how can you say that God is just and and good and kind when you see all these things, uh, earthquakes and right. natural disasters. So that is the problem of evil, and different cultures have come up with different answers. The Hindu answer is evil in the sense of suffering, ultimately, is a consequence of one's own actions. So karma by itself is any consequential action, any action that has an impact, positive or negative, on yourself or on others. And implicit in that is is a belief in, in reincarnation or in many lives, that life is not this linear, one-time thing. Absolutely. We cannot explain that. We talk of people getting away with murder. The Hindu idea is one not uh, forever. Okay, so you might get away with murder in the moment, but in fact this you don't. This time, but you will again. So the idea of the transmigration or the reincarnation is uh, inevitable in the framework of karma. Now, the way I interpret uh, the karma doctrine is as follows. At the very least, it makes one take responsibility for one's suffering rather than point the finger at someone else. And is the idea that, that though you in this life are living with the consequences of previous actions, the way you live this life will, exactly. could determine a better future? Absolutely. And, now, it, and I want to know, yeah. though, how, how you think about that, how you hold that belief with everything you know about physics and, and cosmology uh, as a scientist? And, you know, how, would you be able to talk about that with a fellow scientist in a way that would seem legitimate to them? No, I don't think I can argue for reincarnation from a scientific perspective, quite honestly, although I know there are people who have done research on this question and who have quoted uh, cases where people have vague memories and all that. And I have to confess that uh, as a physicist, I will leave that open. I do not have any firm uh, convictions as to the mysteries of uh, post-mortem existence. See, I I take that as uh, one of the mysteries for which I don't know the answer, and I rather suspect many others who claim to know. But modifying Hamlet uh, slightly, I would say there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our sciences. Physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, more conversation with Vivi Raman, including his idea that poetry is to the human condition what the telescope is to a scientist. providing greater access to the crafting of an hour of radio. You can download an MP3 of my entire unedited conversation with Vivi Raman, where he talks in depth about universalities, numbers, and the Shanti Mantra. You can also download this program through our website, our SOF podcast, and in our weekly email newsletter. Access the program in the way you like at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media and its Faith Streams Network, offering Youth Roots, an online community for congregational youth leaders and their group members to hold meetings, post forums, blogs, and more. Interactive and online at faithstreams.com. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, The Heart's Reason, a conversation about Hinduism and science with V.V. Raman. He's a physicist and a participant in the emerging global dialogue between science and religion. For many years, he's written frequent short essays for friends and colleagues on art, religion, and science. He's reflected on diverse religious figures, world leaders, and history, ancient and modern. Here are some lines from one personal essay Viviraman sent to friends and colleagues. We use words to talk. We enjoy music. We play with numbers. In the Hindu framework, there is a goddess who gives us words and language and music and numbers. That goddess is called Sarasvati. Today, the Hindu world celebrates that name joyously and ceremoniously. By tradition, we are not allowed to read today. Books in the house are placed on a pedestal and worshipped. But tomorrow, at crack of dawn, children are expected to rise early from bed and read from a book, with the resolve to do that every day of the year. Here is a traditional prayer to Sarasvati. You write about in the Hindu framework, there's a goddess who gives words and language and music and numbers. Sarasvati? Yes. Um, So talk to me about how you live with a piece of mythology like that and live with what you know, again, about the physical universe, about numbers, especially. You see, mythology becomes a kind of fairy tale sort right. of thing. Right. I, 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 so, the implication in our culture yeah. is it's something that's not true. I don't, I don't use the word but, that way, but yes. Yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying. It's perfect. And I, I would be the first to say that it's part of Hindu mythology, if you mm-hmm. want, 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 for the outsider. That's no question. But there is something called mythopoesy or something called sacred history. These are parts of all the great religions of the world. And the poetic aspect is extremely important to me because poetry is what gives meaning to existence, not facts and figures and charts, but (laughs) poetry. Poetry is essentially a, a very sophisticated way of experiencing the world. And it is much more than mere words and stories because poetry is to the human condition, as it were, what the telescope and the microscope are to the scientists. Mm. So the way I look at it, like with Saraswati, and uh, I do a meditation to Saraswati. For and this her, is the goddess. Everyone, yes, mm-hmm. it's a god. I find that, uh, and there are images of uh, Saraswati, very beautiful, beautifully clothed in a sari and with the veena, the grand musical instrument of India, mm. and a rosary, as it were, which corresponds to the counting, the numbers. And to me, it is an imagery that evokes reverence and respect, not necessarily for the particular form in which it is depicted, but for all those intangibles, such as counting and number and music and knowledge and science, which enrich human life and human culture and human civilization. Mm. And therefore, it's an aesthetic experience 
to contemplate on something symbolic like that. And I'm well aware that ultimately all these are symbols and that they may not reflect exactly what is out there, but we live in symbols as long as we are cultural beings. Right. And that is how I take it. And uh, I remember uh, we used to do a prayer to Saraswati in school mm -hmm. every morning. And even now, I think there are many schools in India which do that. And uh, somehow it inspired us to go through the days of learning. And uh, it hasn't, quite frankly, done me any harm. <laughs> uh, because w what I mean by that is I'm amazed at the kind of uh, objections people raise to having a moment of prayer in school in America. Now, believe it or not, I also went for some time to a Jesuit school and I yes. uh, re uh, repeated Pater Noster in Latin. That didn't do me any harm either. Right. As far as I can say, these are inspired, these are parts of great traditions and they can only infuse reverence and respect in the hearts of uh, children. You've noted um, that there's a fascinating importance of numbers in both science and religion. And I'd like for you to say something about that, because it is quite interesting when you start thinking about it. Numbers, uh, as you know, are uh, in some ways mysterious in that uh, although we concretize them uh, when we count objects and, uh, and things and uh, days and hours and so on, we talk of numbers always in reference to those. Here is another example of polytheism, if you mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. because nobody can imagine numbers except in those concrete terms of counting. And that numbers themselves are uh, far more uh, abstract. And uh, philosophers of mathematics have often wondered or argued about whether uh, numbers like uh, the so-called irrational numbers and transcendental numbers and, and transfinite numbers, do they have any reality? It becomes quite uh, mysterious, doesn't it? Numbers they become because, mysterious. Mm -hmm. And numbers, therefore, intangible as they are, have also something mysterious about them. And my own feeling is that that may have been a reason why one way or another the religious traditions of humankind have incorporated numbers in specific ways. Hmm. In the scientific world, uh, on the other hand, numbers uh, play a very, very different role, and they are again associated more with natural phenomena. Although I've always been fascinated in my conversations with scientists about how scientists find great beauty in mathematics. Yeah, absolutely. No, that is more, it, much it, more than numbers. It's yeah. almost rapture, right? It's more than numbers, and yet numbers yeah. are the... No, you are absolutely right, because for the mathematician or for the physicist, the idea of mathematics, you know, I think it was Sir James Jeans who said that God, uh, for want of a better word, maybe called mathematical thought right. or something <laughs> like that, because ultimately it is a mathematical beauty of the universe that grabs, I think, the physicists, especially, not, mm -hmm. may not be all scientists, but physicists, because there is there's something aesthetic about the laws of electromagnetism, for example, formulated by Maxwell, or the so-called Dirac equations, and so on. Mm -hmm. So th that is very true. Physicist and Hindu scholar Vivi Raman. Here's an excerpt of his essay, Numbers in Religion. Every major religion refers to numbers and attaches particular significance to certain numbers. In Egyptian religion, there was number mysticism. The number three takes on a special significance in many religious contexts, in the Hindu tradition, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christianity, and so on. Four was important in ancient recognitions of elements, earth, water, air, and fire. In Chinese lore, five is the important number. The Pythagoreans regarded six as the perfect number because its factors, one, two, and three, also add up to it. In the Judaic tradition, numbers are associated with Hebrew letters, and this enables experts to uncover esoteric meanings in words. 
The ancient Babylonians recognized seven celestial bodies that move differently than all the stars in the heaven. Islamic scholars point out that the Quran's magic number is 19. Buddhism speaks of the 12 golden rules, Jacob and Ishmael had 12 sons, Elijah built an altar of 12 stones, and Christ had 12 apostles, etc. Thus, numbers come into religious contexts in many instances. Could this be because numbers are as abstract as God and as relevant to human life as religion? At speakingoffaith.org, discover more short essays like the one you just heard on Hinduism, history, and the science-religion interface. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, The Heart's Reason, Hinduism and Science with V.V. Raman. ask you, we've been talking about how your religious sensibility, how that relates to your scientific sensibility. I'd like to ask another question. You talked about how karma is, is a Hindu response to the problem of evil. I wonder if your scientific knowledge and perspective also inform something like, let's say, your the way you think about the problem of evil in human life and even evil within religious traditions. The things you know as a, as a physicist that give you more to work with as you make sense of that kind of personally. Certainly. I think it is uh, my uh, involvement in physics and the sciences that has uh, given me what I call a historical, cultural understanding of many of these enormously meaningful things in life because science, among other things, enables us to look at human events in human terms. Hmm. Religions in their context enable us to look at human events in religious or trans rational terms. Mm -hmm. Both, in a way, are meaningful and illuminating. If you read a sonnet, let us say, science is like the discovery of the rules of prosody, the rules by which the sonnet is constructed mm. of measure and syllable and the accent, iambic pentameter or whatever, right. appropriately you can analyze the poem. And this understanding of the structure of the poem is a significant accomplishment, but it tells us nothing about the meaning behind the poem mm -hmm. or about the inspiration that the poem might give. And the universe to me is somewhat like that. We Science enables us to understand the laws and principles by which the universe is constructed or it functions. And that is no trivial accomplishment. And I think it's one of the greatest intellectual achievements of the human mind is what modern science has been able to do. Mm -hmm. But... There is always the question of meaning. And while it is possible to derive meaning without going beyond the physical world, and many people do it, it is no less inspiring and fulfilling to find meaning within religious framework insofar as it is not irrational. That is a difference between irrationality and transrationality. Mm -hmm. And to me, many of the deeper messages of uh, religions, such as the values it does or must inspire us to, such as caring and compassion and respect for others, 
helping others, love, reverence. These are not rational. These are not irrational, but these are transrational. And they have their sources in the many religious frameworks of humankind. Uh, they not only carry the weight of centuries, but they also have something deep in them, in the human cultural psyche. And yet, as you know, we unfortunately don't always just see the best of religions. And I think that one reason language about what is transrational carries a new kind of uh, sense of threat in our time because there's a lot of, a lot of violence being committed in the name of of God and transcendence. How do you watch that and how do you think about that? That is uh, a perennial problem. We, I have uh, tried naturally to articulate whatever is the best mm-hmm. and uh, illuminating in the religious traditions if only because there is ample evidence of whatever is worst in the uh, daily use. <laughs> you don't, nobody needs to articulate that. Yeah, yes. And uh, it is depressing that we live in an age when religions have become uh, associated with politics and violence and war and recriminations, that if anybody is to grieve for this, it should be the gods above. Mm. Uh, because this is not what I believe religions uh, were meant to be. Uh, and uh, it is true that in this context, it is extremely important for the leaders, the intellectuals, and the thinkers of the world to speak out openly about all that is bad and evil that has come out of religions, but given that religion is such an intrinsic part of human culture and means so much to at least four, perhaps five billion human beings, what can be realistically done, in my view, is to, if one may use the term tame or bring out whatever is still good mm-hmm. and worthy in religions. Perhaps one could say that a dark side of Hinduism, which seems to me to defy this virtue of universality, is, is the caste system. Now, no, that, that is a very important uh, point. I, I don't want to be uh, apologetic here. I will be the first to say, and I'm part of a group which uh, a growing number of Hindus, both in India and abroad, are speaking out and writing against the evils of the caste system. But the point to remember is that casteism has uh, slowly but surely disappearing, disappearing aspect of Hinduism. Uh, So, and all through India's history, there have been so many poets and thinkers and philosophers who have spoken out against what can only be called the scourge of casteism. And it is a slow, ingrained process, but I think there are very rapid social changes. I personally, as a Hindu, I will say that I have never been pleased with uh, casteism being part of my own religion. And Mm. although I was born in a Brahmin family, I, uh, in fact, refused to accept the caste uh, title that goes with my name. Mm. Uh, Therefore, it is not something that can be defended in any way in the modern world. Uh, We have changed. The world has changed in many ways. And so does Hinduism as it ought to, as all civilized religions ought to. In the last century, there is a person who almost embodied Hinduism for many, and that would have been Gandhi. I mean, Gandhi is still this amazing figure 
influenced leaders of other religious traditions, uh, was revered by Einstein. Mm-hmm. I, I belong to a generation which worshipped Gandhi, as it were. And uh, I was uh, in uh, high school when I attended what they used to call mass meetings uh, where Gandhi spoke. I mean, mm-hmm. several hundred thousand people were there. And to me, Gandhi was extraordinary in many, many ways. Most of all, he understood, I think, that basically that is, uh, human beings are decent. And no matter what, it is by trying to bring out whatever is good and noble in the human personality that we can resolve many complex problems. Now, I will be the first to grant that this can be idealistic talk, and in many instances, it simply may not work. And people have pointed out, could you have applied nonviolence to Hitler and so on? Mm -hmm. But we need to strive for, or at least try to see if we can resolve problems by peaceful means and by trying to be understanding of the opponent's point of view. And that is the key. And uh, Gandhi is a supreme example, and I personally think, I'm glad that there were people like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, two outstanding people in uh, later times who followed Gandhi's path. I myself think, with due respect to the complex problems that uh, this country is facing and President Bush is facing, unless there is an effort to extend a hand of friendship to our most virulent opponents, invite them for conversations and see how best we can resolve all the mess that have come about as a result of doesn't matter whose fault. Mm-hmm. There is really little hope that we can resolve the complex problems of the world by continuing to escalate anger and hatred, however justified it may seem from one's own perspective. And that's that's for you the important legacy for Gandhi of Gandhi I, right I, now. I think so. Mm-hmm. And I think Gandhi has become extraordinarily relevant. I said mm-hmm. I belong to his generation because Gandhi is not so highly regarded uh, today in many parts even of India mm-hmm. because of all the frustrations and uh, chaos that have been caused partly because of this excessive uh, effort to understand the opponent. There are people who have argued that it is that attitude which has resulted which created in, problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. It's a, but I think uh, we can never give up ideals uh, if civilization is to last. V.V. Raman is Emeritus Professor of Physics and Humanities at the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York and a member of the International Society for Science and Religion at Cambridge University. His books include Variety in Religion and Science, Daily Reflections. Here in closing is a passage from V.V. Raman's reflection in that book about the great Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore. Tagore influenced Mahatma Gandhi, and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913. Tagore was a prolific writer, musical composer, artist, but above all, a Bengali poet par excellence. He was gifted through some mysterious genetic coding with rhyme and rhythm, with inner melody and exuberant creativity. In his offerings, Tagore reflected on the inner essence of reality— And there first appeared his immortal lines, Where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, into that heaven wake this Indian land. If Tagore was profoundly moved by the glorious insights of Upanishadic texts, he was no less appalled and pained by the inhumanity of casteism and the mindless mutterings of heartless orthodoxy. The perennial prayer of ancient India, the vibrant theme that is echoed all through Indian history, is also given due place. For the poet pleads, 
Oh, grant me the prayer that I may never lose the bliss of the touch of the one in the play of the many. It is in the words of the poets that the deepest religious feelings of humankind survive. Contact us and share your thoughts at speakingoffaith.org. This program's website features streaming MP3s of Indian music, explanations about its ties to Hinduism's rich traditions and texts, and lush images of festivals devoted to the goddess Sarasvati. You can also download my unedited conversation with Vivi Raman. We're sharing our behind-the-scenes process with you through our podcast, email newsletter, and website. And Speaking of Faith is now available on iTunes U, an enriching resource for teachers and lifelong learners. This free collection is organized by subject and features additional tools for learning. Let us know if you use Speaking of Faith in your courses. Your input will help shape our offering. Look for a link to iTunes U at speakingoffaith.org. The senior producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley, with producers Colleen Sheck and Shiraz Janjua, with assistance from Anna Marsh. Our online editor is Trent Gillis. Our consulting editor is Bill Buesenberg. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. And I'm Krista Tippett. Speaking of Faith is supported by Faith and Values Media and its Faith Streams Network. Offering Web Medley, a suite of tools for congregational use for web design and publishing, RSS, podcasts, and streaming video and audio. Available nationwide, faithstreams.com. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. On the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Next week, we begin a two-part series on new leaders who are reshaping evangelical Christianity. We begin with progressive evangelical social activist Jim Wallace. Please join us for the next Speaking of Faith. American Public Media.